Well, it is a really special time in the life of our church, uh, and I am so eager and excited about the Reach the World conference that is forthcoming. If you're here last week, we kind of ended our Christ Covenant series, and we looked at a vision for the Great Commission. Uh, What is the Great Commission? What does it mean for us? And of course, we, we looked at this command of the Lord that he has given to his church, and, and we said that we desire to be a church that is engaged with the Great Commission. Now, what that means is that we desire for you <laughs> to be engaged with the Great Commission. I think a lot of times we think of the church as this you know, organization that exists, but, but when rightly understood, the church is the people of God, called out by the gospel, called together in the gospel, and sent out right, on mission for the gospel. And that means that the Great Commission is not just something for Billy to do, right? For us to say, hey, good job, Billy. Go do that for our church. No, it's, it's, it's something for us to do. It's something for all of us to engage with individually and collectively. And so that's a question that I want you to be thinking about. How am I engaged with the Great Commission? How, how am I participating in this mission of God to make disciples even to the far corners of the world. And when, when I say I, I mean you. What, what are you doing to, to put your hand to the plow? Now, one of the reasons that we're even having this conference and, and, and doing what we're doing over the next few weeks, which is to take a, a deeper look at these things, one of the reasons that we're doing this is to, to kind of move our church toward engagement. Uh, you know, as we, we kind of talk about our membership, we say, well, you know, some of our members are Great Commission uninformed, right? You know, some of you are new believers. This is a new category for you. This is something that you haven't really thought about that much. Uh, and that's okay. I mean, you're just Great Commission uninformed. It, it's something that's kind of a, a new idea for you. Now, now, some of you, maybe you were a believer for a long time, but the Great Commission was never something that your church really talked about. You know, a lot of churches, even churches in Atlanta that I know, that, that talk about the Great Commission in this way. It's international humanitarian efforts, right? And again, there's nothing wrong with humanitarian efforts. In fact, we're all about humanitarian efforts. But the Great Commission, <laughs> what Jesus commanded us to do, wasn't just to do good humanitarian deeds, things like you know, Compassion International or clean water projects. Again, as good as those are, what he's commanded us to do was to make disciples. And so at some level, in order for the Great Commission to go forward, the word of Christ has to go forward. We, we talked about this pattern last week of evangelism and church planting and church growth. How does the Great Commission go forward? Uh, and I think we got some slides, Sarah, but evangelism, right? This, this pattern of evangelism, church planting and church growth. So we, we want you to, be, to go from being Great Commission, maybe uninformed, some of you, to Great Commission aware, to, to know how does the Lord, what is the Lord doing? And one of the reasons that we, we bring in uh, these partners from all over the world is we want you to hear about it. Uh, we want you to see, like, okay, God is actually at work. Evangelism is happening. Churches are being planted. Churches are growing. One of the greatest things that you can do for your faith is to understand what the Lord is up to outside of your local context. And then, of course, the next step is from, from awareness to get engaged. What are you doing 
to be a part of that. Now, traditionally, we, we've talked about kind of these three basic ways to get engaged with the Great Commission. And, and these ways are pray, give, and go. We're going to be inviting you to pray. And when I say pray, I mean regularly, in a steadfast way, pray as a prayer partner with the work of God around the world. There's a couple of ways to do this regularly. First of all, we have these great prayer meetings at Christ's Covenant. There's one on Sunday morning, one on Tuesday morning. As a regular part of those meetings, we pray for our missions partners around the world. One of the things that I have personally used, it's been incredibly beneficial to me, um, are these prayer cards. Um, um, we have one for all of our missions partners. Here's just two. It's got ways that you can pray for them. And, uh, and just having their name uh, and their information uh, in front of you, and, and, if, and as they come, you can get their actual information and reach out to them. These have just served for me as a great reminder to be praying for what God is doing outside of our context. So I encourage you to pick these up. You know, I put them on my desk. I let them be just these visible markers for me uh, so that I can remember to pray. And then, of course, the next way that we engage is to give. You know, Great Commission Advance takes resources. Uh, and so I encourage you to be generous at Christ's covenant. You know, 11% of everything that we are going to collectively give in 2024 goes to missions outside of Christ's covenant. But I know that some of you, and we encourage this, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that this happens, give beyond what you give to Christ's covenant. You know, the helms, I, I think of the helms that, that um, some of our longest missions partners, I know for a fact they would not be on the field were it not for the particular generosity of some members of our church that in a very crucial moment of their fundraising and support raising stepped up and provided for them to be on the field. And God is, is doing wonderful things through their life and ministry there in Paris. And, and then of course, the last kind of way to engage is to go. One of our goals is that every one of our church members would go on a short-term mission trip at least once every three years. So once every three years, and some of you Hopefully that's every year, but you make it a habit in your life to say, you know what, all my vacation time is not just for me. I wanna, I wanna go engage with what God is doing around the world and to go engage with our partners and to go encourage them. And you know, these, these trips, as short as they are, um, you know, they, they can be incredibly helpful and incredibly encouraging for these partners for you to come alongside them, to pray with them. And sometimes it's just you take, you just do stuff that they just he can't make time to do. I mean, a couple years ago, I was really encouraged this week, a couple years ago, we sent a team to Paris. They cleaned up this church where the Helms uh, meet and it was just this basement area. I'd actually been down there before this group went and it was, there was nothing, it was, it was, it was a storage basement, you know, area. And they made it into useful ministry space. They painted, they cleaned up, they built furniture. And actually we got a text this week from another ministry partner, Brian Kaufman, who'd had a meeting in that space. And he just said, man, this was a wonderful space. And I was just so encouraged by that. Just this pra a practical, simple thing that a team of ours did. It's now blessing the broader church there in Paris. Some of you, you may be called to midterm. We got a lot of college folks in this service. I love I love our tech crew right here. And the, and the row keeps, the rows keep growing. So go jackets. But, uh, um, but you know, what if, what if one of you guys took a summer or even a semester to say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move to Paris or Tokyo or uh, London and I'm gonna come alongside Yannick, you know, one of our new partners there 
in, in London, and I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna be a really good member. I'm gonna support this church. I'm gonna do what I can to help them flourish. You know, some of you young adults, what if you took two years, you know, Kevin West, who we've been long-term partners with, he's been in Kobe. I mean, I just think about in the West. Uh, I had lunch with a friend today and we were talking about planting a church and then starting all over again. And I was like, man, you know, don't worry about me, guys. God has not called me to do that. Like, we were just saying, man, like, gosh, I, you know, I don't know if I could do it. You know, we, we've, the Dees family moved here, uh, you know, about seven years ago and uh, a little over seven years ago. And I'm just thinking about how far we've come in seven years. And I was like, man, I don't know if I could start from scratch again. I'll get exhausted just thinking about it. But that's exactly what the West are doing. They literally exactly what they've done. I think they've been in Kobe exactly seven years. And now they're moving to Tokyo to plant another church. What if some of you guys move to Tokyo? You're an accountant, you're a teacher, you're an engineer, whatever you're doing. And say, I'm gonna try to get an engineering job. I'm gonna try to get an accounting job in Tokyo. And I'm gonna help the West for two years. I'm gonna give them two years to get this thing off the ground. That would be enormously helpful for them. What a great way to spend two years of your life. And then for some of you, we want to see long-term mission. Some of you, I, I believe even these next couple of weeks, the Lord may call you to vocational ministry. Some of you, the Lord may say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm actually preparing you to be on a future church planning team uh, of Christ's covenant. Billy and I actually are planning a trip right now uh, up to the I-95 corridor between uh, you know, Washington, D.C. and Boston, a third of our nation's population lives up there. It's dramatically unchurched. And we believe that the Lord in the next few years, we are praying that the Lord in the next few years would send out teams from our church to plant churches in some of those areas, in some of those cities. What if some of you, the Lord's equipping, preparing to be a part of that? And so I'm really hopeful. I mean, in these next few weeks, they're, they're a huge time in the life of our church for us to just stop for a little while. It's not that this is the only time we think about the Great Commission, but this is a focused time to think about the Great Commission and to hopefully go as a church from being Great Commission uninformed, some of you, this might be a new idea or maybe a foggy idea, to Great Commission aware, I know what this is, I know what God is, is doing, and, and, and obviously further to Great Commission engaged. And as we do this, we're gonna take a snapshot of three different churches in the, in the book of Acts, and we're just gonna learn from them. And, and so tonight we're gonna look at the church of Antioch. And I just really encourage you to flip with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we're gonna read verse 19 to 30, and then we're gonna read the first three verses of chapter 13. So it's like, why do we skip chapter 12? Well, what happens in chapter 12 is that Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem and then they come back to Antioch. So it's Antioch, then the, the narrative follows Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem. That's an important chapter, but we're not gonna look at it tonight. And then they go back to Antioch. And so we're gonna read the Antioch um, narrative parts of this passage. So Acts 11, and I'm gonna start in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Now there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
And when he had come, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit of God that there would be great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending this relief by the elders, to the elders, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now we'll skip to 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, leaders in the church, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's a lot to learn uh, from the church in Antioch. Um, this is not really one of my points, but one of the first things that I notice, I think this is interesting. Last week, of course, we looked at Acts 1. And what does Jesus say? What is the command? You will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And of course, the church is formed in Jerusalem. The spirit of God comes on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people believe at the church of Jerusalem. And everything's great in Jerusalem. There's great teaching, there's great deacons, there's great care for the church. But what's interesting, we're seven chapters in to the book of Acts and the gospel hasn't gotten out of Jerusalem. But then in Acts chapter seven, Stephen stands up to preach and he gives this bold sermon and for his faith. The Lord, it had been amazing. There'd been a lot of moments of courage and the Lord had always protected them. And here Stephen stands up to give this bold sermon and they take him outside the city and they stone him to death. And of course, beyond that, great persecution in Jerusalem rose up in the church that was so unified and so together and, and enjoying this moment of God's grace so much was scattered all over the world. And it seemed like, man, is the church gonna be over is the church going to end before it even got started? But of course, that's not what happened. This persecution, this very difficult thing, I want you to hear this, this very hard thing that the church had to endure was actually itself the catalyst for the gospel going out. And that's what we see here. Look, it says, in those days, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled to Phoenicia and a church was planted and Cyprus and a church was planted and Antioch and a church was planted. That's how this church got here. There's a lot that the Lord can do through persecution. But three things that we can learn from this church, the gospel came to Antioch and it was so impactful and so powerful that the gospel totally changed their understanding of their own identity. It changed their understanding of possessions and it changed their understanding of home. 
So first, the gospel changed their understanding of identity. So the gospel comes to Antioch, but of course, these that came there first, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. <laughs> now, a couple weeks ago, if you were here, I, I preached from Ephesians chapter two, and we talked about the dividing wall that existed between Jew and Gentile. It was absolute. They had nothing to do with one another. They looked down on one another. There was a great division between these two groups of people. But of course, from the earliest days of Jesus's ministry, there were hints, he gave hints that he was coming to save more than just the Jews. That, that he was coming to be God's grace to the world beyond, of course, just this Jewish people. I think of the scene at Nazareth, his hometown synagogue. He goes to his hometown synagogue. He opens the scroll to Isaiah 61. It's a very famous scene. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to preach good news, liberty to the captives. And he says, today, this has all been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I've heard Luke 4 preach before and people will say, ah, Jesus said a radical thing and the people got upset. That's not what happened. They weren't upset when he said, I'm the Messiah. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, the text says, if you read it closely, it says, right after he says it, it says they marveled at what he said. They were pleased with what he said. But then Jesus starts turning the knife, right? Then Jesus said, then Jesus started talking about God's favor to people outside of Israel, outside of the Jewish people. He talked about God's kindness to Naaman, the Syrian, this foreign man, and to the widow of Zarephath of Sidon, which was a Lebanese woman. And basically says this, this promise of good news, it's not just for you. I have this, the Lebanese in mind, the Syrians in mind, I have all nations in mind. And when that happened, when Jesus talk, started talking about how he loved the Gentiles and how he was the Messiah of the Gentiles, well, that's when, they, that's when Luke 4 says they were enraged and they took him to the edge of the town and wanted to throw him off a cliff. But from the very earliest moments of Jesus's ministry, we see hints of this great mystery. And this is the great mystery of the Bible, that the Jewish Messiah is actually the Messiah of the entire world. And that was shocking for both sides, right? The Jews couldn't believe that their Messiah hadn't come just to save them, hadn't come just to show God's favor and mercy toward them, but had come to show God's favor and mercy toward people from every nation and every tribe. I mean, this is, we, we, you know, if you've been around Christianity, this whole all tribes, we just sang about it. It seems very commonplace for us, but it was shocking. The, the, the first century Jewish people, they thought the Messiah is gonna come and kill all the nations. And yet the great mystery is the Messiah has come to save people from every nation. And of course the Greeks, I mean, for the Greeks to have thought that their hope in life was from a Jewish man. I mean, ugh. They were so much more sophisticated than this. They were so much above this, this little Jewish people. And yet for them to come to believe that, that this Jewish man was the king and Lord of all was their only hope. It was shocking on both sides. But of course, this start, after the resurrection, this starts to penetrate. I mean, even in Acts 10, we see Peter preaching to Jew and Gentile alike and the Holy Spirit falling on both of them. And of course, we see that here. It says, there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also 
preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And this is the point. The gospel was preached and it totally changed their identity. All of a sudden, they were, they were no longer Jew or Greek, but, but brothers and sisters, one in Christ. Now, the report of this says come to, came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem. This, this church in Antioch is growing. And it's not just Jews, it's Greeks too. And so they needed more elders. And so the church of Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch. I love this. Now, I can identify with this. You know, we need more elders. We need more church leaders. We need more disciple makers. You know, I, I have this conversation with uh, people all the time at Christ's Covenant. There'll be an older couple that will start to visit the church. And when I say older, I mean like north of 35 years old. <laughs> and, uh, and they'll say, well, I don't know about this church. It seems like it's a year, uh, church for young people. And here's the deal, it is a church for young people, which is why we need old people too. We need disciple makers. We need leaders. We need people that are saying, I'm not, just, I'm not just in church to be served. I'm in church to serve. I'm in church to make disciples. I'm in church to give my life to the things of the Lord. I'm in church to, to build this, the body of my Lord up. And that's the heart of Barnabas here. I love Barnabas. Here's what I love about Barnabas. The gospel had changed his identity. He wasn't just a Jewish man living in Jerusalem. He was a servant of God. And therefore, he was a servant of God's people. And it didn't matter who they were or where they lived, Jerusalem or Antioch, Greek or Jew. So he goes up there to serve them. And he says he saw the grace of God and he was glad. And he begins to preach and teach. He exhorted them to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And this is the kind of church leaders we need. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added. The church grows, right? What do we see? Remember the pattern? Evangelism, church planting, faithful shepherding, more evangelism, faithful, good, healthy church. And what happens? We see church growth. It's exactly what we see here. Well, they need more elders, right? And so Barnabas goes to look for Saul. As Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, of course, this Saul is Paul. We know is Paul. Now, Saul, you know, we, we read later that he also went by Paul, but he started going by Paul. Why? Because Paul was the Greek kind of version of the name Saul, Paulos. And so in order to contextualize his life, I mean, think about that, he changed his name <laughs> to contextualize his life for the sake of this ministry that God was giving him to the Gentile people. And so he went to Tarsus and he found Saul or Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch and for a whole year, now they have more pastors. They met with the church and they taught a great many people. Now, this is actually, if you think about this, what I just read is fascinating. Why, <laughs> why does the church in Antioch exist in the first place? The church in Antioch, it says, it says it right at the beginning of this text, it says it exists because of the persecution that rose up after Stephen was stoned. I mean, just think about this moment here. Stephen, he's a faithful deacon, leader in the church. He's preaching Christ. And yet in this most horrible ways, dragged outside the city, huge stones are hurled at him until he dies for preaching Jesus. And then in Acts chapter eight, 
it says that a great persecution rose up and that people went from house to house and they were dragging Christians out on the street and they were throwing them into prison. And you know who oversaw the stoning of Stephen and you know who oversaw this house by house persecution of the Christian? You know who it was? Saul. This is an amazing thing. And now this same Saul, <laughs> I mean, think about how the terror that you would have to have. I mean, these people move from Jerusalem like to Turkey. And think about all the terror that you would have to have to move to like, Oklahoma or something, you know. They got out of Jerusalem, they moved far away because of the terror of this man, Saul, and now he's come to be the pastor of their church. Isn't that incredible? The power of the gospel, the life-changing power of the gospel. When the gospel comes to you, it totally changes your identity. It changes everything about you. Look at this work that the gospel does in their lives. And of course, we see this. I mean, look at 13 with me. I'm going to scroll down. So if you get dizzy, here we are. We're here. Look at the diversity of this group. So now we're back. Here's the church at uh, Antioch. It says there were in Antioch prophets and teachers. So these are the elders. These are the leaders in the church. But look at this. Look at the diversity of this group. You have Barnabas. So he was a Jewish man. Simeon, who was called Niger, he, he was an African man who'd come to faith. A lot of people believe that he came to faith at the day of Pentecost. Lucius, who is clearly Greek. So you have a Jewish man, an African man, Greek man. How about this next one? Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Well, who's Herod the Tetrarch? He's the one that killed Jesus. So this guy is in the class of Jewish elites, friends with the guy that put Jesus to death, and now he's pastoring a church up in Antioch. And then, of course, Saul, public enemy number one, become pastor. You know, there's a, there's a phrase back up here in 12 that you'll just kind of read over, but it's actually very profound. It says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And you can read over that and say, oh, that's where we got our nickname. No, but why, why is that in there? Well, they were first called Christians because they didn't know what else to call these people. They weren't Jews. <laughs> they weren't Greeks. They weren't Asians. They weren't Europeans. They weren't Africans. They weren't, they fit no category. All they were were Christians. All they were was followers of Jesus. All they were was a people surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. The gospel had come to them and totally changed their identity. I want you to hear this. In most of us, all of us, we come to Jesus asking him, wanting him to do something in our lives. And our life is the central focus, right? Jesus, I need you to help me. I need you to forgive me. I wanna to get to heaven. I wanna be more righteous. I want community. We, we come, Jesus, looking for something, and it's certainly not wrong to come to Jesus like that, but I want you to hear this. When you start to see him, when you get to know him, when you realize the kind of Lord that he really is, when you realize his way and his calling, <laughs> all these things that you need him to do for your life will go dim, 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 dim. And you realize, wait a second, I don't need him to bless my life. He is my life. His, his way is what I want. His, his truth is what I want. What, what he desires, I want to desire. 
What his mission is, is my mission. That's how you become Great Commission engaged. Where this is not just something that we do, it's something we do because, of course, it's what our Lord does. I'm just doing what Jesus does because he is life. The gospel had come and it changed the way they understood their whole identity. But the gospel also had changed the way they understood their possessions. Look at verse 27 with me. It says, these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, Agabus, stood and foretold that there would be great famine. This took place in the days of Claudius. Claudius ruled around the 40s to early 50s AD. So they determined, uh, so the disciples determined everyone, this is fascinating, everyone according to his ability, the disciples to send relief. So they gave everyone according to his ability to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I, I love this. Here's these new Christians in Antioch, and they feel so connected to the church at Judea. They've never met these people, but they're their brothers, they're their sisters. And so they support them. They're generous. They give their money. There's a lot to be said about this. You know, I, even this week as I was kind of preparing my sermon, I was like, we really need more training on the Bible and money and how do we think about money. And I think Christians can go to a lot of extremes with money. And so I, I want to spend some time talking about it. And of course, you know, money is, can be a gift of God. It can be a way that God provides for us. There's certainly this idea of personal ownership in scripture. But here's the deal. Money can be a very powerful thing and it can take the center place in your heart very easily. You know, it's, it's interesting. The one thing Jesus said, I mean, he says, you cannot serve God and money. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say you cannot serve God in sex. He didn't say you cannot serve God in political power. He didn't say, you know, I mean, of all, as dangerous as all those things are, as, as, as much things of sex or political power or, you know, personal power, personal acclaim, whatever it is, as much as those things can become idols in our life, what did he say? He said, watch out. You cannot serve God and money. This thing will grab you. It will become the focus of your life. And again, there's a lot to be said about money and there's training that, that I want us to do as a church. But there's, there's one, I think, test that really tells you how much control money has over your heart, and that's generosity. It's interesting in this passage that they, they, the gospel had come to them and they understood what was theirs in a different way. They had a new understanding of their possessions. It says everyone, according to his or her ability, gave to support their brothers and sisters living in Judea. You know, the Bible has this great principle called the tithe. You probably, if you've been around church, you've heard about this. It's 10% of what God entrusts to you, you return back to him. It's an act of worship. And that's what it is. When we tithe, when we give, we, we're worshiping the Lord. We're saying, money doesn't provide for me, you provide for me. Money's not gonna ultimately satisfy me, you're gonna satisfy me. It's, it's, a, it's a way to worship. It's a way to break ourselves of the, the grip of money. And again, there's a lot to be said about what does tithing look like in the New Testament and what we typically see in the New Testament is people, of course, giving way over and above a, a, a tithe. And for some of you, I think the Lord may be calling you to that. He's so blessed you. He says, hey, I want you, I've given you this to leverage, to steward for my kingdom. I've got a friend in Birmingham that reverse tithes. He is really good at making money. And he reverse tithes, which means he lives on 10% and gives 90% away. And he says to me, 
He says, you know, the Lord's given me a gift to make a lot of money and I do not want it to ruin me. So he just, he just gives a bunch of money. Oh, he's a good guy to know um, if you're in Christian ministry. But, uh, um, but, you know, this, I do think for most people, the 10% is, is a good, it's a good starting place. It's a good, it's a good kind of variance. Am I, am I here? Can I, can I do this? Now, some of y'all say, man, well, Jason, you know, 10%, you know, if you, if you knew how much money I had, you, you, you wouldn't say that. I mean, you, you know, I can't give 10%. Now I'll give when I get a little more money. You know, that's, I hear this all the time. I, I'm making this right now, but when I get here, I'll start to be generous. And, and I just want to lovingly say, no, you won't. You won't. They never do, right? You know, and now if you're making $40,000 a year, if that's your income, 10%, a tithe of 10% is about $333 a month. And again, that's a, that's a lot of money. That's a sacrifice. If you're, making, if you're living off $40,000 a year to give $333 a month, but that's the point. It is a sacrifice, right? It, it's a means to say, look, <laughs> of course I could use this money, but I trust God. Of course this money is important to me, but I want to worship God. I want to honor God. I want to be generous to his kingdom. I trust God more than money. But then I talk to guys that are making $400,000 a year, right? And they say, tithe? Well, that's $3,333 a month. That's $40,000 a year. You know what I could do with that money? You know how much, what kind of investments I could make? You know how much money I could make with that money? See? You see the warning of Jesus? You can't serve God and money. This is a way of gripping your heart. And I do believe that generosity, your, your, your ability to say, look, God provided me everything and I'm gonna be generous to his work, to his people, it's telling. The gospel had come to Antioch and it changed the way that they thought about their identity. It changed the way that they thought about their possessions. And finally, it changed the way that they thought about home. I love this text, verse two of chapter 13. Here they are. All the leaders of the church, the churches gathered together. It says they were worshiping the Lord. They were fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This church was obedient to what the Lord called them to. And there's so much more that I wish I could say here that I don't have time for, but man, what God did through their obedience I mean, this is really where the missions movement began, what we are still a part of. I mean, I love to think about that. Christ's covenant, you know, you know before this, we, we've never, we have, this is the first time we see this in scripture. So, you know, the church got out of Jerusalem, but it came through persecution. This is the first time that we see a church saying, we wanna be a part of the mission of God and we're gonna send off people to go and evangelize. And it's the same pattern, evangelism, church planting, church growth. And that's what we see. Evangelism, church planning, church growth. And, and Barnabas and Paul went together at first and they separated, but the Lord used both of them in city to city to city. And, and within just, you know, a hundred years, there were churches in most every Roman city. It was amazing how faithful the church was, how fast the gospel spread. And I love to think about it this way. You know what Christ's covenant is? Christ's covenant is like the great, 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 great granddaughter of the church in Antioch. This is where it all started. This church was faithful to say, look, we're gonna send our best. I mean, these are their two pastors. We're gonna send our best. We're gonna be obedient to the call of God. 
Over the next two weeks, I mean, as we pray, as we worship, as we gather, I believe the Lord's going to speak. And for some of you, he's going to call you to be faithful in your prayer life, to really partner with one of these missionaries, to come alongside them and, and to be a faithful prayer partner to them. For some of you, the Lord's going to prick your heart to give like you've never given before. For some of you, the Lord's going to prick your heart to go, to go in a short-term way, to go in a mid-term way, to go in a long-term way. The question for us is this, will we obey? Will we obey? And I'm so hopeful what God might do through, through our little church, but will we obey? And here's the deal. It's always uncomfortable. It always requires sacrifice. It always, you know, it, it requires faith to step out, to obey the Lord. I mean, to be consistent in praying. Let's, let's keep it up there. To be consistent in praying and giving and going. I mean, these are, these are big callings in our lives. But I want you to hear this. If we're in Christ, if we love Jesus, if we're looking to Jesus, then, these, then this, this, this missionary life, it's a part of our DNA, <laughs> You know, the church in Antioch, they were Christians. They were Christ followers. And so this is a part of their DNA. And, and as we are Christians, it's a part of our DNA too. I mean, look at Jesus. This is exactly what he does. <laughs> Don't you know that Jesus prays for you? I love to think about that. Does you know that Jesus is praying for you? Romans 8, it says he's seated right now at the right hand of God, interceding for you, pleading with the Father on account of his blood for you. Hebrews 7, it says he lives to make intercession for you, pleading that God would move in your life, that he would work in your life, that he would knit your heart to his. And of course, don't you know that Jesus gives to you? Don't you know that Jesus is generous? I mean, I think of 2 Corinthians. He who is rich, right? You know the grace of God, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. He who was rich, I mean, and there's nobody more rich than Jesus. He has everything. And it says, he who was rich became poor. And nobody came more poor than Jesus. We think of the poverty of Jesus, separated from God, stricken by God the Father on the cross, in our place, ruined by sin. There's no poverty like that. He who was rich, who had all wealth, became poor for our sake so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Of course, Jesus went, he came. And, he went, and his missionary journey was the hardest of all. I mean, he left heaven. I know some of you say, well, I'm really comfortable in Atlanta. It's a very good place. There's no better place than the throne room of heaven. I'll just say that. I like Atlanta too, but I'd rather be with God, you know. And Jesus left his father's side. He left the praise of angels. And he came down to this world to identify with us, to, as the catechism says, to endure all the miseries of this life, to identify with you, to meet you in your worst, to identify with you in your sin. You see, Jesus lived a righteous life. He lived a life that we could not live. He died in our place. He took on the, the record of our sin, facing all of the punishment that we deserve. He overcame all of that with the power of the resurrection. He ascended into heaven. He is establishing a kingdom. He calls you to be a part of it. And he calls you 
to advance it, to tell of it, to evangelize, to be a part of planting churches, to be a part of growing churches. That's the work of the Great Commission. If our motivation of the Great Commission is we feel sorry for these people or we want to go help these people, we'll, we'll be really bad at it. <laughs> but if our motivation for the Great Commission is we follow Jesus, who this is who he is. He is a missionary God and he has come to rescue us. And by his power, by the power of his spirit, he has called us now to do the same. God will do a great work through you, through us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that tonight we would, we would with full hearts, we would with full faith look to Jesus. That tonight and every night, would, he would be our hope, our peace, our righteousness, our joy, our freedom, our life. Father, I pray that the gospel of Jesus would change our identity, would change how we think about possession, would change how we think about home, that we wouldn't be just a guy or a gal from Atlanta, but we would be servants of the living God and therefore servants of God's people. So Father, over these next few weeks, I pray that, that by the power of the Spirit of God, as we worship, as we fast, as we meet with these partners, as we commune with one another, that, that you would speak to us, that you would give us clear direction and that you'd give us the faith to obey. We're gonna ask you would do this work in our church and in our lives. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.